The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon. I'm the host of Deadline DC, a national democratic and progressive strategist and a political analyst for news radio station KNX Radio in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls uh, for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Uh, Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. As always, we have our Crackerjack executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, on hand to keep the show running on time and the, and the podcast uh, online. Uh, our guests today in this hour are our first guest will be Bob Deans, uh, Director of Strategic Engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council. He's here to talk about changing attitudes towards climate change. And then in the second half hour, John Bennett, who is an editor at large at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call, joins us to tackle the rising crimson rage against uh, Taylor Swift as we approach the Super Bowl. Uh, before we get to our first guest, we're going to play this clip from WQAD uh, in California about the torrential rainfalls in, in SoCal. California is being battered by a powerful storm. An emergency has now been declared in eight counties where up to a foot of rain could fall. Hurricane force winds toppling trees leading to widespread power outages. Andrew Denberg with ABC has more. This morning, the historic storm bearing down on California is bringing torrential rain, life-threatening floods, punishing winds, and mudslides. 40 million people are under flood alerts. Several months' worth of rain could fall by Wednesday. I barely got through. We got easily a foot of water here. The streets across Santa Barbara are filling up. Santa Barbara's airport shut down last night, inundated with water. Road conditions also treacherous. This SUV on the 5 freeway skidding onto the shoulder, then flipping over. Flash flood warnings on the map, winter storm warnings for feet of snow in the Sierra Nevada. And that slow mover goes north for a little bit, but it's about what? Look at the timing. Never stops pumping moisture toward Los Angeles, eventually Orange County and San Diego. Rare hurricane force winds reaching up to 80 miles per hour, toppled trees and ripped down power lines. 900,000 power outages were reported overnight. This tree slamming down onto a parked car in North Hollywood. In Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco, a driver was seriously injured when a tree crushed his vehicle. First responders needed more than an hour to free him. The solo driver, uh, that driver sustained major unknown injuries and was transported to a local hospital. Andrew Dimbert, ABC News, New York. It's estimated 200,000 customers in California are without power. That was from WQAD-TV in uh, Southern California. 
Our guest in this half hour is Bob Deans, Director of Strategic Engagement at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, Bob, welcome back to Deadline DC. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, uh, Greg. Great to be you. you heard the clip. Uh, what do you think of media coverage of the climate change crisis? Uh, now, those kind of clips that I played are very common these days. Uh, chances are, if I, when I watch the network news tonight, uh, the lead story will be about these torrential rains in uh, Southern California. Uh, sometimes uh, when they report these things, uh, they mention they mention of climate change. Sometimes they don't. So what uh, do you think generally of the, uh, the relationship between the media coverage of these weather disasters and the problem of climate change? I think generally, Brad, we're getting some excellent coverage and it's getting better from the big national outlets that have uh, beefed up their climate coverage. They have, uh, in some cases, built climate desks of reporters who have real expertise in the issue. Um, I think as a general matter, reporters are careful not to overstate, and I think rightly so, uh, the impact of climate change on any one specific event. But more and more, we're seeing into the coverage a recognition and understanding that climate, the changing climate, the climate crisis is the stage that this kind of extreme weather is playing out on. And so, for example, in California, what we have right now are these atmospheric rivers that are pounding the country with high winds and saturated with rain and snow. It's because the Pacific Ocean between California and Hawaii is unusually warm right now. We had marine heat waves globally last year. Am I still here, Brad? Yeah, you are. Oh, okay. Um, we had globally um, marine heat waves around the world. And as you know, the ocean is absorbing somewhere north of 90% of the additional heat from climate change. And so a recognition that this is playing a role in these atmospheric rivers, along with El Nino, which is a periodic climate pattern that brings higher temperatures and more moisture to California. So we're seeing that. Where we're having a problem with the media is in local coverage, because we've had a washout in local newspapers. More than 2,500 local papers have folded in just the past decade, Brad, leaving vast swaths of this country as news deserts. They do not have people locally covering, uh, bringing them local news. And here's an important climate impact that's having. USA Today did a fantastic piece that released yesterday about places around the country that are now banning clean energy. And so what we've had, for example, 180 counties around the country have had their first wind farms over the past decade, but more than twice as many have now banned wind turbines. And we're not getting the local coverage of the damage this is doing to uh, local communities that are being denied the revenues, for example, that come from this, the opportunity to benefit from clean energy, the opportunity for lower energy prices, and the opportunity for quality of life improvements that can come along with these projects. And so that's where we're seeing a real problem, Brad. Okay, I know I'm gonna, this is in the category of questions that I should ask, but I don't really wanna know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Why are they banning wind turbines? 
Well, the um, real answer to your question is that the fossil fuel industry has been very aggressive in trying to impede the development of the clean energy transition that we need to wean ourselves from these fossil fuels that are driving the climate crisis. That's what's actually happening. Now, on the ground, how does this play out? Uh, various moratoria, local zoning ordinance changes, out-and-out -out bans. Uh, they can take many, fa many uh, faces, but if you look underneath what we have done, we have found around the country, this is the fossil fuel industry largely driving this, Brad. That, that's crazy. Uh, you know, actually, one of the reasons I like having you on the show, Bob, uh, besides uh, your knowledge of the subject matter is because you're generally pretty optimistic about the fight against climate change. And so this leads me to ask a question, are we winning or losing? Oh, that's a great question. I guess you could you could argue it flat. You could argue it round. I would say here's what um, we're optimistic, what we're hopeful about. In December, uh, the United States and 197 other countries in Dubai agreed to name the problem. The problem is fossil fuels. And these countries, including the United States, said we're going to transition away from those fuels. We're going to transition away from the, the billions and billions of dollars of subsidies for the for fossil fuels and we're going to shift increasingly to the cleaner smarter options that we have to power our future that was important and so now the question is how do we turn that promise into real progress on the ground now we know here in this country that uh, the president enacted a year and a half ago the strongest climate action in our history through the inflation reduction act which included 370 billion dollars worth of climate and clean energy incentives over the coming 10 years and already, Brad, these past 18 months, here's what we've seen. Private corporations have announced $110 billion worth of factories to build wind turbines, uh, uh, solar panels, electric vehicles and advanced batteries all over the country. And 95,000 new jobs, Brad, this is strengthening the economy. It's strengthened the domestic supply chain for the building blocks of the clean energy economy. And it's making us more energy secure by reducing our reliance on the kind of fossil fuels that pad the war chest of belligerent petro states like Russia. And so this is real progress. Okay, we, well, we're going to have to uh, take a short break here. Okay. Bob, our guest in this half hour is Bob Deans, Director of Strategic Engagement at the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're going to take a short break now for our radio listeners, but we're continuing this interview with Bob uh, streaming live on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Banton. Our guest in this half hour is Bob Beans, Director of Strategic Engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council. By the way, I want to remind our radio listeners that if you want to watch the show as well as listen to it, uh, you can watch us uh, at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon at facebook.com front slash deadline dc brad front slash brad bannon uh and uh front slash videos and on youtube at youtube.com front slash deadline dc 
Bob, in the uh, first uh, segment of this interview, we talked about uh, media coverage of the climate crisis. Uh, my, I want to talk to you now about a Yale University study on attitudes towards climate change, which I found very interesting. Uh, the headline that I saw in the study was uh, Americans are becoming more aware of climate change, but... Uh, could you talk about that study, please? Sure. The Yale University study is one of the most authoritative um, public opinion surveys that we have on climate change. And when it comes out, it speaks with great authority. And the reason that we're seeing this uh, increase in public awareness is because climate change is impacting people in their personal lives. And the Washington Post did a, a story not long ago that showed that nearly eight in 10 Americans, 78%, said they had personally experienced the kind of extreme weather that we know is being made worse by climate change. Whether it's the kind of heat waves that threatened two thirds of the country last summer, uh, whether it's the kind of uh, droughts that drove the Mississippi River just last fall to its lowest level in history, or the kind of wildfires that swept across Canada last summer and blotted out the sun as far south as the United States Capitol. And so this is no longer something folks are reading about from a, a, a journal study or a lab report. This is what we're seeing outside of our kitchen windows, Brad. Uh, does the increasing awareness of climate change measured uh, in the Yale University study, uh, is that translating in calls for uh, specific actions to deal with the problem? No question about it. In fact, we saw a recent um, study that showed 80% of the public uh, supports federal action to cut the carbon pollution from power plants that burn gas and coal. And this is important because this is exactly what the EPA is going to be finalizing a rule. Uh, we expect Brad in, in April or perhaps even March that's going to do just that. And so uh, these demands are being heard by this administration, and it needs to be reflected more broadly across the political landscape here in Washington and at the state and local levels, Brad. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, let's uh, try this. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is uh, recently uh, the administrative change in, in the Biden administration and environmental policy. Uh, John Kerry is leaving his position as a climate czar, want of a better word. And he's, uh, first of all, could you talk about uh, Kerry's legacy in the job? He has a long record of environmental activism. Sure. Here's a man who was, uh, of course, a United States senator, then later U United States Secretary of State. So um, uh, Senator Kerry. Uh, was very effective at using uh, American leadership uh, globally to try and raise ambitions globally uh, around climate action. And what he's now being replaced by John Podesta, um, who has been, of course, the, the uh, domestic, has worked on domestic clean energy innovations and climate work. And John Podesta is one of the most respected public servants anywhere in Washington. He's uh, been around uh, for 30 years um, with an active role at the most senior levels of government. Of course, he was chief of staff for President Bill Clinton. He played an important role in the Obama administration. He's led, he created the uh, Center, for Center for American Policy here in Washington. He's done substantive policy work 
He has two generations of world leaders in his Rolodex, and he is uniquely qualified uh, to pick up where John Kerry is leaving off and find a way for the United States to lead by example and help raise the ambition of our partners and friends all around the world, Brad. Okay. Uh, I think the last time we had you on, Bob, was just after the Dubai conference on uh, climate change, uh, which was a couple of months ago, I think. Uh, has there, there, for the first time at Dubai, the uh, United Nations uh, came, out, came out with a clear statement that climate change was a serious threat to the world. Has there been any follow-up uh, to the conference uh, that you're aware of that we should uh, know about? There's a lot of follow-up going on behind the scenes, Brad, because the goal now is for the United States and other nations uh, by the end of this year or certainly in the early weeks of next year to come up with their next round of climate commitments. And if you remember, uh, when the Paris Climate Accords were inked in December of 2015, the idea was every 10 years, these nations are going to ratchet up their climate commitments. And so that's coming up in 2025. So that's where a lot of work is going on behind the scenes now. What's our target? What's our goal? How are we going to achieve that? So that's very important. Um, and I think the, the president sent a very strong signal when he put a pause on the approval of new applications for terminals to export liquefied natural gas from this country. He sent a real signal that we're taking this seriously and we're going to evaluate these applications in that light, Brad. Uh, let me ask you, uh, the United States uh, and uh, China are two of the world's biggest contributors uh, to greenhouse gas. Uh, we've talked about what the United States is doing. Do the Chinese have a commitment to dealing with this problem? No question. In fact, China is the world's largest investor by far in clean energy, um, solar, solar energy, wind energy, electric vehicles, advanced batteries, and high-speed rail. You know, you can hop on the train in Beijing at breakfast, Brad, and have lunch in Shanghai. That would be like going from Washington to Chicago in about five hours on a train, so you're not having to get on an airplane. Huge carbon benefits there. But um, the important thing is that uh, China, of course, is the largest country in the world. It's doing something no nation has ever done, which is to move uh, 1.4 billion people uh, from a, a place where m many were experiencing abject poverty just a generation ago and have now joined the global middle class. China's using an enormous amount of energy. Unfortunately, a lot of it is coming from coal right now. And so China's working hard to replace that coal with clean energy. And so uh, China has committed to peaking its carbon emissions by the end of this decade and then gradually curbing them. China is on track right now, Brad, to beat that schedule by several years. So that's the encouraging part. And uh, the United States and China, as you say, we're the two largest economies in the world, we're the two largest carbon emitters, and we have a real responsibility to partner together across the Pacific and work to help fix this global problem. That's great, Bob. Thank you for joining us again. Our guest in this half hour was Bob Deans, Director of Strategic Engagement at the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're going to take a quick break here, and in our next half hour, our guest is John Bennett, 
from Congressional Quarterly Roll Call uh, to talk about uh, politics and other things. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is uh, is uh, John Bennett, who's an editor at large at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Uh, we're here to discuss a number of Super Bowl topics. Uh, our first uh, topic is going to be uh, the uh, political polarization. Uh, in the United States is measured by uh, the now uh, politicized Taylor Swift. But we're going to play this uh, clip from uh, Seth Meyers before we bring on John. The conservative movement is so rotted and intellectually bankrupt that they have found themselves in a place where they are somehow enraged about a popular singer dating a football player. Is Taylor Swift in her Biden era? The Biden campaign is now trying to win over Taylor Swift's heart and snag an endorsement. I think if she wanted to be protective over her legacy, she would stay out of politics. I'm just saying maybe she wants to think twice before making a decision about 2024. This has all the true love of an arranged marriage. This is probably cooked up in a lab. Everybody just assumes at that point that there has to be some grand conspiracy theory behind it involving uh, the the, uh, Biden administration. Vivek Ramaswamy claiming that this year's Super Bowl is going to be rigged. We have had enough of Taylor Swift for now. It is so scary. There was a recent poll. One fifth of Taylor Swift fans said they would back whichever candidate that she endorsed. Just please don't believe everything Taylor Swift says. We're all begging you. Allow me to quote a Taylor Swift lyric when I say, you people are out of your minds. I'm just kidding, that's not a Taylor Swift lyric. It's Seth's version. Seriously, what is wrong with you? Yeah, it's a good question. What is wrong with them? Our guest in this half hour is John Bennett, editor-at-large of Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. He's here to tackle the rising crimson wave of right-wing anger towards uh, Taylor Swift as part of our Super Bowl political preview. Uh, John, what do you make of this Taylor Swift thing? You know, I was thinking if, if I don't know who's who's I don't know who savored Sunday, uh, the Niners or the Chiefs. But if the Chiefs win, this Taylor thing, Swift thing is going to explode to, uh, you know, proportions that are unbelievable. And I guess the first question I ask you, uh, do you think Taylor Swift is a Pentagon uh, psycho-op to uh, mobilize the nation behind uh, Joe Biden? Wow. Uh, There's a question, Brad, that I I never thought you would ask me or anyone else (laughs) for that matter. Um, By the way, the San Francisco 49ers are right now a one and a half point uh, favorite, which plays into... Um, the the conspiracy theory a little bit, I believe, uh, in that, you know, if the Chiefs do pull off uh, another Super Bowl victory, they would do it as an underdog. And that would, of course, um, that would fuel the conspiracy theory because the 49ers are the favorite. But the Chiefs win anyway. Um, no, I do not believe that Taylor Swift is part of a Pentagon uh, psychological operation that somehow designed I guess as a long kind of a long con here where, you know, she's been on television um, off and on uh, throughout the NFL season. 
at uh, Travis Kelsey's games at, at Kansas City Chiefs games. And, you know, you get five, six, seven cutaways a game, depending on how he's playing, if he's scoring touchdowns or making big catches. Um, uh, some of those games he didn't have his best outing and, and there were fewer cutaways. Uh, and But all that coverage and then, you know, during the game, after the game, all week, uh, you know, networks, sports networks, NFL Network, CNN, even Fox, they're playing these clips over and over again. So there's all this coverage. He, she's also bringing in uh, new viewers to NFL programming. It's not that, you know, if the Chiefs are on here locally in D.C. that, um, you know, I'm not watching the Commanders game. I'm choosing to watch the Chiefs game in the national AFC game of the week. No, no, she's bringing in, you know, teenage fans, uh, suburban moms who were watching maybe with their daughters to, to see the cutaways to Taylor, to see her walking in and out of the stadium, maybe on the field after with uh, with Travis Kelsey. And and she has, her being there has increased uh, those ratings for Chiefs games. So, you know, you can't deny that part of it. And the thinking here is that somehow um, this increased uh, coverage and interest in Taylor Swift would lead to her somehow endorsing Biden. I've heard some of these right-wing theories that it could even happen Sunday after the Super Bowl with Mr. Kelsey holding um, the Super Bowl trophy and perhaps the MVP trophy, and she might be wearing a Biden T-shirt or a Biden beanie or something like that. Um, but I don't think this is part of any um, political conspiracy. Uh, do I think the, the NFL and their broadcast partners and um, Taylor Swift, Inc. And, and her record label have all kind of joined forces and they're probably talking to each other about how they can maximize all of this and Travis Kelsey's camp uh, as well and his agent? Absolutely. So I think this is more of a corporate effort right now than it is a political effort. Okay. Uh, well, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, are we seeing the rise of uh, celebrities? And there have always been celebrities in politics, but are we uh, seeing a new trend? Uh, I think you wrote a column last year uh, pitching uh, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, as uh, Joe Biden's running mate. Uh, do you think there's any chance Taylor Swift can uh, supplant his ambitions? I don't think we're seeing anything new, especially on the Democratic side, in terms of celebrity endorsements. Uh, the column I wrote for Roll Call, um, I guess a couple months ago, was just at that point, the economy had, had not really turned in President Biden's favor. It has since, and it's picked up, excuse me, picked up steam uh, in favor of the former or the, the current president. Uh, but at that time, it just wasn't looking good. Poll numbers were down. Um, the, the Israeli-Hamas war was was threatening and, and since has spread across the region. And he was getting really low marks from inside his own tent on that. So I said they might need to think about a celebrity nominee like The Rock. Um, I think we've moved past that. And I think the, you know, the nominee is going to be Joe Biden. But no, I mean, especially Democrats, they always try to get celebrity endorsements. They always look to Hollywood, um, not only for endorsements, but also big campaign donations. 
So that's nothing new. She is uh, a very unique uh, superstar in that, um, you know, even though she she has she, she did endorse some Democratic candidates, including Joe Biden in 2020, that has not hurt her uh, so far. This is going to be a very close election, it looks like. So, you know, I think there are questions that she has to ask herself and, and her representation and, you know, uh, her business folks and her family members, they need to have that conversation. I don't disagree with someone in the clip you played about there are there are risks for her career here with a possible endorsement. Remember what Michael Jordan said back in the 80s. They wanted the Democratic Party reached out to him. The Republican Party in North Carolina reached out to him. Um, and, and in Illinois, when he was playing with the Chicago Bulls, and his response was always, you know, I'm not going to get political because Republicans buy sneakers, too. And she needs to think about that because Republicans buy concert tickets, too. OK, OK. Uh, just to finish this conversation off, uh, who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? You know, I just think Kansas City is playing really well right now. I think their offense has has really figured it out. They've they've they they've started clicking at the right time. This is what you want to do. Uh, they had an up and down season for the most part. Um, the offense was not the offense that that we had seen in the past, but they've really figured it out in the playoffs. Uh, speaking of Travis Kelsey, he's playing exceptionally well. Patrick Mahomes is playing really well. And I, I question the San Francisco defense. I think that was something that uh, during the regular season got overlooked a lot. And, and I think Kansas City will just score too many points. San Francisco's also had a lot of – they've had some slow starts in the playoffs. Their quarterback, Brock Purdy, he's had some bad first halves. And, and I just think Kansas City will, will jump out by two scores and win 28-23. Okay, one last question before we go to our break. Uh, you're a proud alumnus of Appalachian State. Are there a any App State players playing in the Super Bowl? No, nobody. Uh, we've had we've had some uh, some guys who were lucky enough to uh, to play for the 49ers, uh, but no one currently on an active roster in, in this game. But I will give a shout out to the uh, App State men's basketball team currently alone in first place in the Sun Belt. Okay, way to go. Okay, we are going to take a break from this discussion of the politics of the Super Bowl uh, with John Bennett uh, and give our radio listeners a couple of minutes off. But we're going to continue this interview with John Bennett from Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call uh, on with for our watchers, viewers on video at Twitter.com, Facebook.com, and YouTube.com. We'll be right back after these, this very quick message. The conservative. Welcome back to Headline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is John Bennett who is an editor-at-large at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. So, John, uh, if let me ask you this question. There's been some mention, probably by progressives, uh, that if uh, the Republicans are always complaining about immigration reform, uh, but uh, they fail to be able to do anything about it, uh, do you think that's a viable charge against them heading into the elections or is there 
their credibility in immigration is just going to increase as uh, is, uh, immigration at the Mexican border increases. I think their, their blockade will definitely help them with their base, their shared base with former President Trump, that, that MAGA base. It, it'll help them feel like they've fought back against um, you know what? What I was getting to before the last break—that uh, Donald Trump says this would this bill, the Senate White House bill, would somehow make the border less secure and would increase uh, illegal immigration rates. Uh, James Langford, who was the lead Republican uh, negotiator uh, toward that bill, a very conservative senator from Oklahoma, he says the opposite. Mitch McConnell uh, agrees mostly with. With, uh, with Senator Langford about the contents of the bill and if signed into law, what it would do long term. Um, but no, I, I don't think this hurts. I don't, I don't think this hurts um, Senate, vulnerable Senate Democrats. I don't think, even if it fails this week, even if they don't get 60 votes in the Senate, uh, the first vote would be a procedural vote uh, to shut off debate and tee up a final vote, even if that fails. I don't think um, this, I don't think it will stop President Biden or vulnerable Senate Democrats or even uh, vulnerable House Democrats from running on what was produced from the talks. And, you know, it's very simple to say, well, Senate Republicans wouldn't even vote to let us have an up and down vote. They blocked it on procedure. What are they afraid of? It's, it's the first comprehensive immigration bill um, really since 2013. So that's a long time. That's 11 years. And Republicans in both chambers blocked it. I think that I think that's a convincing message. And remember, that message would be aimed mostly at uh, independent voters in six to eight swing states, depending on on which polls you believe. Those are the ones that are really going to decide the general election. And it looks like a rematch between Trump and Biden. So that's that's who the Democrats message will really be targeted at. And I do think that's convincing because Democrats were ready to, to, to get this thing to the president's desk, and he said he would sign it as soon as it got over to the White House. Okay. Let's tackle another subject now. Uh, last Friday, we found that the uh, economy had produced in the uh, month of January 350,000 new jobs. Uh, consumer confidence is going up. Uh, in, uh, Inflation is beginning to uh, shut down. Uh, is all this good economic news? Is this going to help Joe Biden uh, in November? Or do you think that uh, attitudes about his economic record are so baked in now, it's too late for all this good news to help? I think you've nailed it on the last part of your question there about the perceptions of the economy and, and whether it's too late. I can tell you from, from talking to the Biden campaign, being on, on some press calls and, and things like that, um, that they're not worried that it's too late. They actually think it's a little too soon to really hit the gas pedal on some of these messages. Um, they've gotten more aggressive in the last few weeks, and that's because uh, myself and others, you know, I went to the Hill and talked to a number of Democrats who were critical of the campaign, that they weren't talking enough about the economy, that they weren't making, that the campaign wasn't making the case that the economy is actually getting stronger. But the campaign has in recent weeks pivoted in that direction. And and for good reason, because 
as you alluded to with the, the most recent numbers and really the round of numbers, a few number round of numbers before that, the economy is, you know, fundamentally getting stronger. It is turning, this issue is now turning toward one that looks like will be, if, if the trend holds and, and who knows, uh, but as of right now, it, it should be a good issue for Democrats and Biden. And boy, you know, if I, I think I was on your show six or eight months ago and, and I said the opposite. So that's how quickly um, these things can change. And, you know, a president doesn't have that much um, that much sway over the direction of the economy. You know, Donald Trump is saying that now that 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 it's all Biden's fault. But, you know, I was in the Rose Garden and the Roosevelt Room and the East Room and, and, and the Oval sometimes. Um, during the during the Trump administration, he was saying uh, he would say the opposite uh, when when the economy he would get a, a round of bad economic numbers or two in a row. He would say, well, you know, the president doesn't have that much sway over it. So um, I, I think it's pretty remarkable that Democrats are now gearing up their talk. And you're starting to hear more and more talking points from their side about the economy. And Republicans, they wanted to run on this and and they're not that's being taken away. That's why I think you're, you're seeing this big immigration push from all corners of the Republican Party with, you know, the James, James Langfords and the Lindsey Grahams and, and those folks and the Mitch McConnells aside, um, because they have to run on something. And, and when you take the economy away, when you look at polling, really always the number two or three issue, if not number one, for Republican voters is immigration, especially that MAGA base and after all, Donald Trump ran on immigration and the economy and also immigration's impact on the economy in 2016. That was really the rocket fuel of his 2016 campaign. COVID, other other forces drew him away from that in 2020. And I think it did hurt him, especially with independent voters, because I've had Republican and Democratic senators and, and House members tell me in recent weeks, when they talk to independent voters about immigration, they're some of the most passionate about Washington needs to do something. So immigration is, is a bigger issue than, than I thought a few weeks ago for independent voters, and they're the ones that are going to decide this election. Okay, uh, let me ask you this. You uh, mentioned before, uh, and I agree with you, it looks like Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Uh, if that's the case, uh, it looks like we're going to have uh, a Trump-Biden rematch. And assuming that Joe Biden uh, sticks with Kamala Harris uh, and doesn't uh, go for Taylor Swift or The Rock, uh, the next question is, uh, who does Donald Trump uh, bring on to his ticket? Do you have any thoughts on uh, who Trump might pick? I think uh, Donald Trump has signaled to us uh, since Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, dropped out of the Republican nomination that he is seriously considering Senator Scott. I think Christy Nome, uh, governor from from the Dakotas, is also on that list. Uh, but I think Scott's the leader right now. And, and if not him... I, I talked to a number of Republicans on the Hill last week. Um, no one thinks it's going to be Nikki Haley. She's the last Republican other than Trump standing in the primary. Uh, but she's going pretty hard at, at Trump's age and kind of mental acuity, mental awareness uh, at, at age 77. 
So I don't think it'll be Governor Haley. Uh, my hunch tells me right now, uh, the leader in the clubhouse, so to speak, we know Trump loves golf, is uh, is Senator Tim Scott. And remember, he's he's a he's an African American. He's a, he's a black senator. Um, he can go places and talk to audiences that that maybe Donald Trump wouldn't be able to. And black voters right now, especially black male voters, are telling pollsters at least that they're not very happy with Joe Biden. So I think Scott would bring a lot to the bottom of the Republican ticket. Okay. Uh, and uh, what about the other name I hear is Aletha Stefnak, who's uh, part of the Republican leadership in the House. Do you hear her name often? We do hear her name, uh, my colleagues and I. Uh, Elise Stefanik from New York is the um, GOP House Conference Chair. That's the number four Republican uh, in the House. And, of course, Steve Scalise, unfortunately, has been away from Washington. He's battling a uh, form of cancer, so he's been getting treatment back back home in Louisiana. So she's been doing you know, some, some duties uh, that trickle down when he's out. So she's known to all the members uh, doing the work that she does. You know, she has relationships. Uh, she has impressed Trump over the years. I would keep an eye on things like the upcoming CPAC conference. I would keep an eye on her television appearances. And and if she's especially on on Fox or Newsmax, we know he he Trump watches those networks a lot. This is now a tryout between the Tim Scotts and the Elise Stefanics of the world, and he may jump jump the route here, so to speak, and announce okay. earlier than most presidential candidates do. We're going to have to leave it at that, John. We're out of time. I want to thank my guest, uh, John Bennett, who's an editor-at-large congressional quarterly roll call, and Bob Dean, st- Director of Strategic Engagement at the Natural Resources Defense Council. This is Brad Bannon for Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.